Lord, we ask for a fresh anointing, God, that you would bring your word to life in our lives, Lord, that we would see uh, this sermon that Stephen preaches and how he goes over so much uh, rich history in Israel, uh, but that uh, the point is not just to tell us a story of history, uh, but to to help us, to guide us, to and direct us uh, in the present, Lord. So I help, uh, I pray that you would help us understand how this applies to us. What does this mean to us? So please, again, fill us with your Spirit. Guide us in your truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right. Uh, so last week, as I mentioned, I wasn't here. If you were here, you know that. Uh, we've been going through the book of Acts. And uh, just a reminder, uh, the way we're going through the book of Acts is uh, maybe unconventional. It's not the way maybe you've gone through it in the past. We're actually going through Acts in chronological order, meaning that as we get to certain sections where Paul writes epistles, okay, uh, when we get to these certain spots where Paul's in a certain place, Antioch for over a year and all these different places, there are epistles that he writes and we're going to fit the epistles into the book of Acts. So when Paul writes Galatians, we're going to stop from Acts. We're going to teach through Galatians. Then we're going to pick back up in Acts. And my heart behind that, other than prayed a lot about that, uh, is really for us to understand that there's a lot going on between the lines. Okay, There's a lot happening in the early church uh, that's not necessarily mentioned in the book of Acts, specifically issues that are going on and specific, uh, also specifically doctrine that's being developed. So with that, we're in Acts chapter 7 today. If you remember, uh, the church has been growing. It's been growing rapidly despite the persecution. The enemy has been at work internally and externally with the church. Internally, remember, he entered Ananias' heart to try to raise up Ananias to deceive the church and lie about giving the full amount of the land that he sold. And we see Sapphira, his wife, was in on it. The enemy was trying to cause division in the church, but actually the opposite thing happened and it instilled more fear in the church, fear of the Lord, the good type of fear the church we see continues to grow not only that we see the external persecution if you recall back in acts chapter 4 uh, peter and john they were brought before the sanhedrin and the sanhedrin said hey can't preach in the name of jesus anymore and they threatened them hoping that they wouldn't continue to share the gospel But we see that they continue to share the gospel. And despite that imprisonment and the imprisonment later on in Acts chapter 5, the church keeps growing. The church keeps multiplying. That brings us to Acts chapter 6. If you recall, there was a problem in the church. There was an issue. What was the issue? Well, there were widows that were being neglected. There were certain people that were Christians that weren't being taken care of. So the apostles, it gets brought to their attention and they say, hey, we need to come up with a solution and we don't have time personally to take care of this issue we got to focus on the spiritual side of the ministry because that's what the lord told us to do so we need help so they raised up leaders and one of those leaders if you recall was a man by the name of stephen he's described as being full of faith and power we see him doing wonders and miracles he preaches the gospel with power but this caused another problem See, the religious leaders didn't want anyone sharing the gospel. They didn't want anyone telling anyone that the man they had killed, Jesus, was their Savior, was their Messiah. 
So, Stephen, much like Peter and John, he gets some unwanted attention from the religious leaders. And with this, Stephen, he's going to address the situation specifically with the religious leaders and share this profound, story, this profound sermon. It's powerful. But the point that Stephen is trying to get across is he's addressing the hearts of the religious leaders, that their hearts are wicked and they're far from God. He's also helping them see that throughout all of history with the Israelites, they have rejected God. And that's why the title of this teaching is A History of Rejection. A History of Rejection. Uh, with this sermon, if you remember, maybe it'll help if I read it for you, there were four things that they accused Stephen of committing blasphemy on four separate issues, okay? It's in Acts chapter 6, if you would look at verse 11. They secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then in verse 13, it says, they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not speak uh, does not cease to speak blasphemous words against his holy place in the law. The holy place being referred to is the temple. Okay, so they're accusing Stephen of speaking blasphemy against God, Moses, the temple, and the law. Okay, he's going to address all these issues with this sermon, and most of them he's going to address more than once. He's going to show them that he isn't committing blasphemy in the way that they're saying. If you would with me, it's Acts chapter 7. Verse 1, then the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved to this land in which you now dwell. So the high priest confronts Stephen. This high priest is likely Caiaphas, the same man that had Jesus put to death. Okay, this could have been a pretty scary situation. This guy had Jesus put to death along with Pilate and Annas, but he was a huge part of it. And now this guy's confronting me about the things that I'm saying. In fact, that's exactly what they accused Jesus of, committing blasphemy. That's why the religious leaders wanted to put him to death. They accused him of committing blasphemy against God by claiming that he was God. So we see Stephen is addressed by the high priest, and then he begins to share this message. And he starts off, if you would, back with me, verse 2. He says, brethren and fathers... So we see the respect of Stephen. He's doing this full of the spirit with tact. There's an element of love here. He doesn't start off and say, uh, you stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart. He's going to get there at the end of the chapter, but he starts off because he wants them to hear what he's about to say. Brothers and fathers, brethren, my people. Okay, we're, we're all from the same lineage and other words. See, Stephen... Throughout this sermon, he's not necessarily telling these men things that they don't already know. Okay, These men 
were the men, the religious leaders that were supposed to know the Old Testament like the back of their hands. So they're very familiar with these stories. They know about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. They know about this stuff. He's not trying to just give them a history story or remind them of things that have happened in the past. No, it's his perspective on it. The, what Stephen is trying to do is help the religious leaders see their history in a different light. And he's going to point out some specific things to address the sin in their lives and address some of their false beliefs. We also have to recognize that Stephen isn't going to preach this message to defend himself. Stephen isn't defending himself. He's defending his faith. Okay, He's not trying to get out of persecution. No, we see him warmly welcome persecution. He's okay to get persecuted. What he's standing for is what is true. It's not about him trying to persuade them to get him out of the situation, not imprison him, not put him in jail. He's about defending his faith. So he starts off, if you would, back in verse 2. And he speaks of Abraham. The God of glory appeared to your father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. What's his point? Remember, they accused him of committing blasphemy against the temple. See, what the religious leaders had done was basically they were worshiping the temple instead of the God for whom the temple was built. Okay, they made an idol out of the temple. Jesus even addresses this in Matthew chapter 23. They were swearing by the temple and doing all these things. The temple was, oh my gosh, they actually revered the temple more than they revered God. This was an issue. So they accused Stephen of committing blasphemy against the whole... uh, sorry, blasphemy against the temple. And Stephen's point here with Abraham is that God didn't appear to Abraham in a temple. Okay, God didn't appear to Abraham in a tabernacle. No, he appeared to him in Mesopotamia or Iraq. He appeared to him, in other words, in the middle of nowhere. He didn't appear to him in a building. So point number one, God isn't bound to a place. God is not bound to a place. That's his point. You guys have so much reverence for the temple, but we see God didn't just appear in the temple. He appeared to people in so many different places. Now we know this. God's not bound to a place. He's not bound to a specific location. We know that God is omnipresent or or all present. He's everywhere at once. But we also have to remember, we can get kind of confused with that. Yes, he's all present, just as the spirit hovered over the face of the earth. Spirit still does. We do see a difference, though, in the types of presences of God, if you will. Often he manifests himself in a way to make himself known. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Like, okay, I know God's all present. but There's certain times where I sense his presence a lot more than other times. And this is the type of thing that he's referring to uh, in this encounter that Abraham had with God. God made himself known. It wasn't just like, yeah, I know God's presence. No, he made himself known to Abraham. See, the religious leaders... They got so caught up with the temple and this is the proper place of worship. If we don't worship him here, then we're not doing it right. And they exalted the temple to this thing, as I mentioned, as if they were making the thing, the temple, God, instead of letting God be God. But we can fall into this sometimes as well. What do I mean? Sometimes we think the church is the only place of worship. Okay? I'm going to come to church on Sundays or Sundays and Wednesday night or whenever you come to church because this is the place that I worship God. And yes, this is true. 
worship, uh, the church is a place that you worship God. But when you look at worship in the Bible, worship isn't just supposed to be done at a specific place. It's to be done at every place. The Bible teaches us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, that we're supposed to do all things as unto the Lord. Worship isn't just singing. Worship is a lifestyle. We can worship the Lord wherever we are, whether it be at church or at home with our families or at our jobs or on vacation. All those places are opportunities to worship God. Now, I will say this. There is something special about coming to a place that's been dedicated to the Lord, specifically a place that's focused on representing the God of the Bible in truth. Okay, we absolutely see that in Scripture. Uh, I had a girl say uh, one time, um, most devout Christians I know don't even go to church. I was thinking I didn't say this. I question their devotion. Why? Because the Bible teaches us that we're not to forsake the assembly of the brethren. Okay? Church isn't like, oh, I have to go to church because this is the only place I can worship God. No, you can worship God anywhere and everywhere. That's what the relationship is all about. But sometimes people say, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go to the church because they're a bunch of hypocrites and, and, and I don't like them. And, 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 you know, I've been burned by the church and all these different things. And some of those things might be true. But when you look at the Bible, it teaches us that we're called to come to a place, specifically called to come together. Remember, the church is the people. It's not the building. And we're called to worship the Lord, not just solo, but as a body of believers. We see David in 1 Samuel chapter 26 one of the reasons why he was so upset with Saul is probably the, the biggest reason why he was so upset with Saul continuing to come after him and trying to kill him uh, was because, hey, I, he said, I don't get to share in the Lord's inheritance, meaning uh, the promised land. I can't come to the house of God. I can't come to the tabernacle. Yes, David knew that God was omnipresent, but he also knew there was a special place in that time, the tabernacle where David could come and worship God and there was something special about that see the religious leaders were under the assumption that the worship of god had to happen in the synagogue or had to happen in the temple but stephen's going to prove that that's not true abraham was called by god before there was ever a temple before he was even in the promised land and look at what abraham does or sorry, look at what God tells Abraham to do back in verse 3. So God, he says to Abraham, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. See, our relationship with God, it's not a place that we come to. It's a pilgrimage that we're on. It's not just a place we come to. It's a pilgrimage. It's an adventure of faith. That's the type of faith that the Lord calls us to come on, to be a part of. Abraham, think about it. God tells you, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave everything you know. Okay, he's not going to leave his wife, okay? He's leaving his relatives. I want you to leave all this behind, your comfort zone, your location, everything you know, your job, whatever. And I want you to go here to a land that he doesn't even know where it is. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And we see Abraham as the father of faith. He did it. 
It's interesting. God actually gave me uh, this. This text is being quoted from Genesis chapter 12. Okay, when God called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans uh, into the promised land. And this was the text God gave me to come out to California. He says, you're going to leave your relatives. You're going to come to a place that you don't know. You're going to have children. Jude was born last year. There's all these promises that were connected. A lot of this stuff has come true. Now, I'm not going to say that I believe the Lord is going to bless the nations through my seed. Okay, I don't think that promise applied to me at all. All right. But there was a bit of this that did. And I was like, oh, my gosh, guess we're going to be out there longer than I thought. See. The Lord, when he calls us out to a place, often our comfort zone. We got to be willing to take the step of faith. Why? If we won't take the step of faith, we're going to miss out on the adventure. And then our faith is not going to be the faith that the Bible teaches. It's an adventure of faith. It's not a comfort zone of faith. The Lord called Abraham to leave everything behind and follow him. If we're not willing to do that, and it doesn't mean that God's going to tell you to leave here and go somewhere else. It's not about that. It's just about what he tells us to do. If we're not willing to do it, then we're going to miss out on the adventure. That's it. We're going to miss out on it. And there's going to be regret. Abraham, he did as the Lord told him to do. In Acts chapter 7, Verse 5, and God gave him no inheritance in it, in it he's speaking of the promised land. God didn't give him an inheritance in the promised land yet. Not even enough to set his foot on. He didn't even own any land. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession as to his descendants after him. God had promised Abraham that he was going to give him the promised land and bless the nations through his seed when what? He didn't even know where it is. He had no inheritance in it, and he didn't even have a kid. The point is, there was no evidence that God was going to fulfill his promise. There was nothing external that's, look, oh wait, well I have a kid, so that's going to make sense. You know, uh, these things could play out. I've been there, and I understand the map of the promised land. There was no evidence when God made that promise, no practical evidence, that God would actually fulfill that promise. Abraham had received that promise by faith. This is point number two. God's about faith. God's about faith. We know this too. God is about faith, but sometimes we forget the religious leaders. They got so caught up with trying to keep the law and the Mishnah and the Talmud and all these extra laws that they created. They got away from faith. See, <clears throat> Stephen's emphasizing that it's about a faith-based relationship with God. This is in reference to the accusation that he committed blasphemy uh, against the law. Faith came before the law ever came. <laughs> it was about faith. That's why Abraham went out to the place that he didn't know. And it was the faith, not the works, that initiated the works. The works didn't initiate the faith. The faith initiated the works. What do I mean? It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, if you want to write it down. Hebrews 11, 8 says, by faith, faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He went out not knowing. He, he didn't know. He didn't know the area. He went out strictly by faith. He believed God's promise, expect, uh, even though there didn't seem like a practical possibility that his promise could be fulfilled. He believed God's promise and his faith initiated works. His faith initiated works. It wasn't, he wasn't working for faith. He was working from faith. And this is such a significant point 
that Stephen's trying to make. It's got to start with faith. And that's what the Israelites have been lacking for a long time. Now, another point of emphasis is the fact that when God made this promise to Abraham, as we mentioned, he didn't have a child. 90-something years old. He didn't have a kid yet. Didn't seem possible that he would have a kid. And God tells him, I'm going to bless the nations through your seed. When we look at this text, specifically, I'm speaking of the whole sermon, we're going to see uh, Stephen do something very creative, okay? He's going to give us typologies, okay? And I know that can be a kind of a big term, but if you're not familiar with it, basically a typology uh, is a principle from the Old Testament or a story from the Old Testament that connects to a principle from the New Testament, specifically in this text, and then this is when it's uh, most often used, uh, is when we have a picture of the Old Testament, a character in the Bible that gives us a picture of Jesus, okay? It's like a foreshadowing thing, okay? This is a, the Jesus is going to do these same types of things, and we're going to see Stephen use several of these typologies to point us in the direction of Jesus. The first one you could say Abraham is, uh, we won't get into his for time's sake, but this son that would come, the son of promise, Isaac, okay, he's a type of Christ. What do I mean? He was the son of promise, as I mentioned. But when you also look at Isaac's story, the, what's the first thing you think of when you think of Abraham and Isaac? What's the first thing you think of? That Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, right? That's usually the first story I think of. And this story in Genesis chapter 22 gives us a picture of Jesus. I'll show you. In Genesis chapter 22, we won't read the whole section. We'll just read a couple verses so that we can understand this. In Genesis chapter 22, then he said, he being God, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, into the land of Moriah, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wait a minute. God's telling Abraham to sacrifice his son, to literally perform a human sacrifice. Like, this seems crazy, right? But we've got to remember what happens. Genesis chapter 22, verse 6, it says, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. Abraham was ready to do it. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Look what Abraham says. My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. You hear that? Abraham said God would provide for himself a lamb. If you remember this story... An angel ends up stopping Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. And guess what? A lamb is never sacrificed. They end up sacrificing a goat. This was prophetic from Abraham. In fact, this is what the entire Bible is about. God said he would provide for himself a lamb. That's why John 1 is so crucial when John, the apostle, John quotes John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the lamb that God promised he would provide. He is the lamb of God. Not only that, we've got to remember, 
the father, Abraham, was called to take the son up a hill and sacrifice him. Guess what happened? God the father ended up taking his son up the hill, the hill of Calvary. And that time he actually did sacrifice his son because he was the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Isaac is a picture of Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring, the, bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. So there was this promise made to Abraham. It wasn't just good promises like, oh, yeah, you're going to come out of this place. You're going to have uh, you're going to have kids. I'm going to bless your seed. The nations will be blessed through your seed. There were some negative promises as well. Uh, if you think about it that way, he also promised that his descendants would end up leaving the promised land and be enslaved. We see later on the place that that happened was Egypt, right? And the Israelites through Joseph were in, uh, ended up being brought to Egypt. And they suffered for these 400 years experiencing slavery. In Acts chapter 7, verse 9, and the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and a great trouble came over all the land of Egypt in Canaan and our forefathers found no sustenance. Now, first off, Stephen mentions to us Joseph, right? It went Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who would later called Israel. Then his sons would make up the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, Joseph was one of those sons. Now, bringing it back to the fact that they accused Stephen of committing blasphemy against the temple. Look what he says here in verse 9. But God was with him. Again, he's uh, he's. He's, he's helping the religious leaders and us confirm that God is not bound to a place. But there's something even more interesting that happens here. Joseph is another typology. He's another type of Christ. Okay, If you were with us in our study through Genesis last year, you'll remember some of this. And, and, and Joseph gives us Really the best, there's more connections with Joseph and Jesus than any other typology, at least from what I've studied. But we're going to go through a few of them. I want to help us understand the direction Stephen is pointing us towards. He's pointing us towards Jesus. Jesus. So if you remember Joseph, what happened? He was, his, he was the favored son, right? He was the favored son of Isaac, or sorry, uh, Jacob, or other, in other uh, words, Israel. And what we see was that his brothers were envious of him. It says that the religious leaders were envious of Jesus, and that's why they had him put to death. What they do to Joseph? Because they were envious of him, they had him enslaved, right? They had him enslaved. He had to go through this trial. He had to go through this turmoil. 
in the midst of him being enslaved, he ended up getting falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, right? Jesus was falsely accused by these false witnesses that came against him at his trial. We see that Joseph's brothers rejected Joseph. They rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him. Just as Jesus' brothers rejected him by not believing in him. Probably the biggest one of all, and there are many, we can't go through all of them, is that Joseph would ultimately be brought to a position where he was the second most powerful man in the world. Okay, He sat at the right hand of Pharaoh. Why? For a specific purpose. So that Joseph could save the Israelites through the seven years of famine. Okay, That's what God's purpose was in all of Joseph's trials was to bring Israel out of the famine to be saved in Egypt. Jesus, we see, is the Savior, yes, of the world, but also He comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation, seven years, seven years, at the end of the seven-year tribulation to save Israel. Okay, He's going to save a third of the Jews. Stephen's point is that just like your father's, uh, didn't recognize that Joseph was a special type of savior. You guys don't recognize that Jesus was the savior of the world. He goes on continuing the story of Joseph in verse 12. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So the second time it says verse, uh, verse 13, that Joseph was made known to his brothers. Okay. It's a picture of Jesus in his second coming. Okay. The first time Joseph encountered his brothers, his brothers rejected him and made him go through all these different trials and tribulations. It's a picture of Jesus suffering and being rejected by the Israelites. The second encounter they have with him, he's at the right hand of Pharaoh. And his brother's going to respect him. In fact, they're going to bow down to him in submission. That's exactly what's going to happen in the Lord's second coming. The Israelites will recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. It says the look on the one whom they pierced as one mourns for an only son. And they're going to accept him. Joseph wasn't accepted at first with his brothers, but he would be later just as Jesus wasn't accepted in his first coming, but he will be in his second coming. Acts chapter 7, verse 15. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Now, we should pick up something here. Look at what's happening. So, little history, and he mentions this. But when Joseph was at the right hand of the power being Pharaoh, 
uh, Pharaoh and Joseph and the Israelites are on good terms. Why? Because Joseph technically saved the whole known world at that time. So Pharaoh and Joseph are good buddies. Well, it tells us later on in Exodus chapter 1 that another Pharaoh came that hated the Jews. And he looked at the Jews and saw that they were growing and they were multiplying. And that upset him. He was afraid that they were going to overpower him one day. So that's why he ends up deciding we need to kill all the firstborn. We need to stop this thing. But the interesting thing is the Israelites, they multiplied despite the suffering. Why? Because God's hand was in it. If God's hand is on a specific people group and he decides that that people group needs to multiply, then guess what? All the persecution and suffering in the world isn't going to do anything. What's happening in the early church? Mass persecution is happening at the hands mainly of the religious leaders, mass suffering, yet we see the church continue to multiply and multiply. This should have registered in the minds of the religious leaders. Wait a minute, God multiplied us back then because his hand was on upon us, even though there was suffering and persecution and slavery and all these things. Now we're trying to persecute the early church, yet it continues to multiply. Verse 18 Till another king arose and did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. Now, we're mentioning the story of Moses here. That was chronologically the next thing, obviously, that happened. And remember, they accused them of committing blasphemy against Moses. That was one of the four things that they accused him of. So, Stephen is going to address the story of Moses and help them understand uh, they've actually rejected Moses. Let's look how he does this. In Acts chapter 7, verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but that they, uh, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did this, his neighbor, uh, he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? The main point that Stephen is bringing out here is that his their forefathers, the religious leaders' forefathers, have rejected Moses. And in rejecting Moses, they ultimately rejected God. This is point number three. Rejecting the messenger is rejecting God. They said, who made you ruler and judge over us? They didn't want anything to do with Moses in the beginning. We also see Moses is a type of Christ. And we'll point out a a few things, not everything, but Moses is another typology. Remember, he left his glory or his kingdom in Egypt 
Why? Because of his brethren, he wouldn't dwell in the wilderness. Just as Jesus left his glory in heaven, his kingdom to come dwell in the wilderness among men, if you will. We also see some other connections here. I'll point you to a couple verses that we just read. In verse 25, it says, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. See, the Israelites, they didn't realize, they didn't understand that God had sent Moses to be their savior, to be their deliverer, just as the religious leaders right now, they don't realize that God sent Jesus to deliver them. We also see in verse 26, the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them. Okay, that was one of Moses' primary responsibilities, bringing his people, reconciling them with each other and reconciling them with God. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why the greatest commandments are to love God and love others. He is the one that reconciles us unto God. Verse 27, but he who did this, he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? And this is probably the biggest one. They didn't want Moses to judge them. They didn't want Moses to be ruler over them. Just as in the New Testament we see just before the Lord's crucifixion, it says, we don't want this man to rule over us. We'll take Caesar. We'll take Caesar as king. We don't want our Messiah to judge us. We don't want his kingship. Just as they rejected Moses, so too did they reject Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, verse 28. Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then, at at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Again, (laughs) he's helping us understand, hey, God appeared to Moses before the tabernacle was built, okay, before the temple came after that by Solomon. He goes on, verse 31, when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the Lord, I am the God of your father's. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Again, reference to the temple. It's not a building that makes something holy. It's God's presence that makes something holy. Okay? He said it didn't matter. He was in the wilderness. He says, Take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. What made that ground holy? It wasn't special other than the fact that God was there. Okay, that's what makes something holy. God's presence. Then he says in verse 34, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Put yourself in their shoes. Okay, the Israelites, and this is the final generation that's in bondage for 400 years. All they know is slavery, okay? They're aware, uh, likely, of the promise made to Abraham that this would happen for a short period of time. But think about it. All your ancestors, all they know is slavery. What makes you think anything's going to change? So we hear the people crying out, and God says something so powerful that applies to us as well. I want to point out a couple things in verse 34. He says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people. You ever go through a hard time, a trial, a difficulty? You feel like, is God not seeing this? 
Is God not seeing what's happening in my life? If he's seeing what's happening in my life, why is he allowing this thing to happen? Not only that, he says, I have heard their groaning. Why? We assume sometimes God doesn't hear us, okay? Just because there are times of silence doesn't mean that he doesn't hear, okay? He hears us, especially when we're going through difficulty and we cry out to him. But not only that, he says, and I have come down to deliver them. He promises to come down to to deliver us from that trial, from that tribulation. Now, the way he delivers us is ultimately ultimately up to him. That doesn't mean that he's taken us out of the trial. Oftentimes, it means he's going to give us the strength to endure the trial. And that's his avenue of deliverance. He can take us out of the trial. He doesn't have to. But the point is, God sees, God hears, and God will come. That's what he wanted to make known to the Israelites, regardless of how hard you got it. I'm aware. I'm aware. And I'm going to do something about it. Acts chapter 7, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Just as God sent Moses to deliver them from the bondage of Egypt, so too did God send Jesus to the world to deliver us from the bondage of sin, right? The Bible tells us that we're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. We're going to be a slave to something no matter what we think. The freedom that we can experience only is experienced when we choose to be a slave to Jesus Christ. Yes, he delivers us from slavery The slavery of sin in hopes that we'll choose to be a slave to him. Moses is a picture of the deliverer. Acts chapter 7 verse 37. This was what Moses who said to the children of Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Okay, this is a big one. Peter's already used this verse to help the people understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. This prophecy is from Deuteronomy chapter 18. And basically what we see is that God gave Moses this prophecy that there's going to be one that comes who's greater than them. One that comes who they have an opportunity to listen to, and how they respond to that one who comes will determine their their eternal destination. And this is obviously speaking of Jesus. So when you look at all the different things that Moses did, he did a lot of amazing things. This is probably one of the most amazing. The prophecy, a prophecy, that Jesus would come, that the Messiah would come to either deliver or judge, determining Determined by how they would respond. So they rejected this message. Okay, They rejected the prophet that God sent in Jesus. So ultimately, they're the ones that rejected Moses. Okay, They rejected Moses because they rejected his prophecy because they missed it when Jesus came to fulfill that prophecy. Acts chapter 7 verse 38. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected 
And in their hearts, they turn back to Egypt. He said, you're accusing me of committing blasphemy against the law, but our fathers have been doing that since the beginning. And you guys don't keep the law either. Jesus tells us in Matthew 23 that they put this heavy burden on people's shoulders that they themselves will not bear. They're not keeping the law either. Stephen's pointing to the fact that Jesus is bigger than the law, but it doesn't end there. It says in verse 39, that the, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to, be for us, to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a cap in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Okay, so what happened? Basically, what Stephen is pointing to is the fact that their forefathers have been rejecting God from the beginning. They rejected God after he parted the Red Sea. They rejected God after he provided the manna. He, they rejected God after he provided water out of the rock. They, they rejected God time and time again. Not only that, but when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, what did they do? They couldn't last 40 days without seeing a God that they could follow. So, they ask Aaron, make us a God. We, we need a God that we can see. We want a God that, that's tangible, that we can touch. Now, we got to remember, God did things that they could see. But they needed a God right there, right then, right in front of them. So they say, make us this golden calf so we can worship that and they begin worshiping the golden calf instead of worshiping God. But he also points out something else here in verse 41. It says, And they rejoiced in the work of their own hands. He makes the connection between the golden calf, okay, and them building the temple and their works-based faith. Okay, it's all connected. They're rejoicing in the work of their hands. The temple, but they're not rejoicing in the work that God's done. It's the fourth and final point. Rejoice in his work, not yours. Rejoice in his work, not yours. They were so proud of what they accomplished. Look at how beautiful this temple is. And the temple was apparently so beautiful. But they were worshiping the temple instead of worshiping the one for whom the temple was built. They were worshiping basically what they did, the work of their hands, versus what God did. And this is easy to get caught up with. It's easy to get proud in the things that we accomplish, our accolades, our... our um, Whatever the success may be. Oh, I did this, or I accomplished this, or I went there. It can even happen in ministry. Look what I've done. No. The Bible speaks against that. Specifically, Paul, who had outworked everyone, if you will. He even says it here in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. And though I also might have confidence in the flesh, or confidence in my own capabilities, okay? If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things there were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. 
Paul says, yeah, I've done a lot. Uh, he says, concerning the law, blameless. I've accomplished a lot of things with these hands, but I count all those things as trash, as garbage. They literally mean nothing comparing knowing how good Jesus truly is. Comparing to, 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 to know how loving the Lord is uh, compared to understanding the work that He performed on the cross was greater than any work I could ever perform with these hands. In other words, the Israelites, they started rejoicing the work of their hands and they forgot who had been carrying them in the wilderness all those years. Their work compared to God's work was next to nothing. But then he goes on to emphasize this idol worship. And this is where we'll close. If you would, Acts chapter 7. <coughs> then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Riphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. It didn't just end with the golden calf. The Israelites continued to worship false gods. Some of these Bible says were the host of heaven. Literally, they were worshiping demons and sacrificing their children to demons. They wanted something tangible, something that they could see. And they wouldn't give it up. They weren't willing to give it up. So what did God do? He gave them over to it. He says, hey, you want to worship the gods of Babylon? Go worship the gods of Babylon. He gives them over. You want to do that? Here you go. 70 years, you can worship them, worship them all you want because God, he's so loving, he's so generous that he'll even give us over to the things that destroy us. He says, you really want that? I'm not going to force myself on you. I'm not going to make you stop doing that. Now I'll try to get your attention. I'll send people your way. I'll try to get messages your way. I'll try to give you some signs here to help you understand this thing is destroying you. But if you really want to go off to Babylon, go ahead. I'm not stopping you. This is exactly what he did with the Israelites. This is exactly what he does with us as well. See, it wasn't just the Israelites that fell into worshiping false gods. We see all mankind falls into this horrible habit of worshiping false gods. Paul addresses it in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Meaning, creation alone is enough evidence that God exists. So if people say, I didn't hear the gospel, just creation. Creation is enough to help people understand that God does exist. He says, they're without excuse. He goes on to verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And the birds and four-footed uh, animals and creeping things, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, and the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
This has been the problem with humanity all along since the beginning of creation. What did Adam and Eve do? They chose, in other words, to worship the creature rather than the creator. See, they were supposed to have dominion over the earth. They were supposed to have dominion over the creatures. And what did they do? They gave the creature, Satan, dominion over themselves. And that's why we're in the mess that we're in. But this seems to be the tendency throughout all of history. People worship the creature. It was like, but I don't worship creatures. I don't worship animals or things like that. I'm meaning things that are created. It could be a person. It could be a substance abuse problem. It could be a car. It could be a job. It could literally be anything. The point is that the Bible is telling us through Paul that we get carried away and we begin putting these things above God. We start worshiping these things as if they're God. Whether we admit it or not, that's what our lives show. And he says, you know what? God gives people over to that stuff. He gives them over. He says, hey, you want this thing that's destroying you, this bad, guess what's going to happen? It's going to destroy you. It's never going to leave you satisfied. It's never going to bring you to a place of fulfillment. And the Lord's hope is that he, as he gives us over to our idols, just as he did with the Israelites and in Babylon and Assyria and all the different times that he did it, is that we run our faces into the ground so hard that we have nowhere else to look but up. And we recognize, wait, this isn't God. I've been treating this thing like God and it's, it's not God. Let God be God. Worship the creator, not the creature. That's the problem that the Israelites had. And that's the problem that many men and women have. See, Stephen is pointing out the fact that Israel obviously has a history of rejecting God. They've rejected God since the beginning, since God made the promise to Abraham. Everything after that we see rejection, 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 rejection. And it'd be easy for us to look at this and go, you Israelites, how could you reject God like that? But that's not the point. We've got to remember this text is in the Bible um, not just for the Hebrews, but for the Gentiles as well. For the church, it's a warning sign. In other words, how do we reject God? How do I reject God in my life? We can reject God in so many different ways. Maybe we don't worship demons, but it could be another way. I could reject God by simply being disobedient. I could reject God by being too afraid to tell people about Him. I could reject God by not bearing the name Christian properly. That's a rejection of God's name. There's so many ways that we can reject God and the Israelites. As Stephen pointed out, they rejected God in so many different ways. We got to remember that God uses this story through Stephen. Yes, to get something across to the religious leaders, but it's also a warning for us and a check for us and say, hey, Am I rejecting God in some area of my life? Am I, am I being like the ancient Israelites? Because I know he's called me to be in fellowship with him, to bear the name Christian, to be a little Christ as the word means, to magnify his glory by magnifying his name. If I'm not doing that, then that's some sort of rejection. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text and just how powerful um, Stephen's sermon was. 
God, and we know there's so much, so much to learn from it, Lord, but I just pray that um, we would learn something from it. God, we'd walk away uh, with something. If there are areas in our life where we've rejected you or we haven't properly um, portrayed you and your character, God, help us to, to understand that. Help us to be able to make those uh, those corrections and, and also encourage us and help us to know how, how we're not rejecting you in other areas of our life, God. We don't want to fall into a history of rejection. We don't want to fall into the same pattern that the rest of the world has fallen into. We know you've called us to something more than that. God, so I pray that you would bless each and every person that came today, Lord, that you would continue to encourage them, speak to them, uh, Lord, that uh, we truly would uh, purpose to live for you, um, not just this week, but the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.